Good afternoon, everyone. There are various ways in which our relationship to God is characterized in Scripture. In certain respects, for example, all human beings are created in the image of God. As we read in Genesis 1, beginning in verse 26, Genesis 1 and verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in, in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. There are, as you know, those today who are striving mightily to erase the distinction between male and female, or in some way distort it and pervert it, Nevertheless, God created human beings in his image as a, and as a family because God is a family and human beings, both male and female, bear the image of God. They are his children in a sense, as we read in Acts 17, beginning with verse 26. Acts 17, verse 26, he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. Notice that they have the uh, capacity to seek the Lord and depending on circumstances to an extent and their determination to find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring, his children. So God created human beings in his image. He likens us to children, which we are in a very real sense, since he created us. We are likened as sheep to a shepherd as plants of various kinds. The church collectively is likened as a wife to a husband and, and so forth. There are other analogies as well. Another aspect of our relationship to God is that of students to a teacher. The word disciple occurs scores of times in the English translation of the Bible, mostly in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the word disciple is translated from the Greek word methetes, and the word means a learner, a pupil, or a student. Actually, it means more than that. As Vine's Expository Dictionary points out, quote, a disciple was not only a pupil, but an adherent. Hence, they are spoken of as imitators of their teacher, end quote. And then in the International uh, Standard Bible Encyclopedia, we read this, quote, in all cases, it, that is the Greek word for disciple, implies that the person not only accepts the views of the teacher, but that he is also in practice an adherent. The word has several applications. In the widest, widest sense, it refers to those who accept the teachings of anyone, not only in belief, but in life, end quote. In other words, they not only accept the teachings, but they strive to live by those teachings. So to be a disciple of Jesus is to be his student, and it is to be an adherent to his teachings. As we read in John 8, verse 31, John 8, verse 31, Jesus said to those Jews who believed, who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. If you abide in my word, in other words, if you live according to my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And he also said in John 15, beginning with verse 7, John 15, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you may bear much fruit, 
so you will be my disciples. We are Christ's disciples if he is abiding in us and, in us and his words are abiding in us. And we are to so bear fruit and be his disciples. As the Father loved me, he went on to say, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. In today's sermon, I want to explain how one may become a student or a disciple of Jesus Christ and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, if, if disciples are students of Jesus Christ, then that implies that Jesus Christ is our teacher. And in fact, Jesus is referred to by that title a number of times in the New King James translation of the Bible. A teacher is a translation of the Greek word didaskalos. And in the King James Version, that same Greek word is often translated master. At the time that the, the King James translation was uh, issued in 1611, I believe it was, uh, that was a common word for a teacher, the word master. Basically, it means the same thing as teacher, and more often we would use uh, teacher in modern English rather than, rather than master, as is in the New King James. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia comments as follows on the role of Jesus Christ as a teacher. Quote, in the New Testament, we find that Jesus is preeminently a t the teacher, though he was also preacher and healer. His Sermon on the Mount was matchless teaching. He opened his mouth and taught. The titles teacher, master, rabbi all indicate the most prominent function of his active ministry. Even at the age of 12 years, he revealed his wisdom and affinity in the midst of the rabbis or Jewish teachers of the law in the temple. In the power of the spirit, he taught so that all recognized his authority. He explained to the disciples in private what he taught the people in public. His principles and methods of teaching constitute the standard by which all true pedagogy, pedagogy is a word which basically means teaching, is, uh, uh, is the standard by which all true pedagogy is measured and the ideal toward which all subsequent teachers have toiled with only partial success. In the commission, as recorded in Matthew 28, verses uh, 18 through 20, we have the work of Christianity presented in educational terms. And if you haven't read that scripture lately, it, it's where Jesus told his apostles to go out and make disciples of all nations and to teach them certain things, to teach them to do all things that he had commanded them. So the mission of the church is a mission to teach, just as Jesus Christ taught, and we are to teach the things that he taught. So Jesus was in his ministry doing the work of a teacher more than anything else, although there were other important aspects of his work as the Messiah during his sojourn in the flesh. Early in his ministry, Jesus selected from among men around the area in which he lived as a youth, certain ones to train as his leading disciples. And these men that were uh, trained by him for three and a half years, spending time with him constantly as he went about his ministry, those men eventually became apostles. And so we read in Matthew 10, beginning with verse 1, Matthew 10 and verse 1, when he called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Ze uh, Zebedee, and John, his brother, 
Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and uh, Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and here this word, the Canaanite, is a word that means zealous. It is not a reference to ethnicity. They, these were all Israelites and uh, perhaps all Jews, tri uh, members of the tribe of Judah. But in any case, the name Simon the Canaanite means that he was extraordinarily zealous in his demeanor. And it also mentions Judas Iscariot who also betrayed him. Now it's likely that Jesus had known some, if not all of these men before calling them to become disciples. As I said, they, these were people who lived in the area where he had grown up. And some of them may have, have known him personally or had, uh, had known about him. Probably all of them had at least heard of him and knew something about him. We read in John chapter one, beginning with verse 29, John 1 and verse 29, the next day, John, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. This was when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And John went on to say, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. And again the next day John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, the word rabbi is a Hebrew word, which means teacher. And so they said, Rabbi, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated to stone. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So this was how Jesus went about gathering to himself his closest disciples, those who were chosen to 
spend the next three and a half years with him, learning, being taught by him. And these, out of all of the men among the Israelites, these 12 were specifically called and chosen by Jesus to be his closest disciples during his ministry. But during his ministry, he invited many others to become his disciples as well. And he also sent his disciples out to, in, to themselves invite others to become disciples of Jesus. During his earthly ministry, Jesus, Jesus often spoke to the masses in parables. That is, he used analogies to illustrate prophetic or spiritual truths. And often the masses did not clearly understand what he was talking about. Even his close disciples often did not understand what he was talking about until he explained it to them privately, he explained the meaning of his words. And so we read in Mark 4, beginning with verse 33, Mark 4 and verse 33, with many such parables he spoke the word to them. This was to the crowds of people. He spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. Now, this, this gives us a clue as to why he was speaking to them in parables. He spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. So he would use analogies, but not explain precisely what these analogies were about except to his disciples. And so in Matthew 13, beginning with verse 10, we read this. Matthew 13 and verse 10, the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So it was not given to the crowds that he spoke to at that particular time to understand the mysteries, the, the uh, knowledge that was to a large extent hidden from them at that time. So why did Jesus say to his disciples, it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven but to them it has not been given. Jesus answered that question in Matthew 13 and verse 15. Matthew 13, verse 15, he said, the hearts of this people have grown dull. Now this is Jesus' explanation of why he was speaking to them in parables. The hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Now, some have found properly understanding this verse difficult as it's translated in the New King James or King James versions, but there are several other versions that perhaps make the e uh, meaning easier to understand. For example, the Bible in worldwide English translates this verse as follows, quote, the hearts of these people have no feeling. They do not hear well with their ears. They have shut their eyes. They do not want to see with their eyes. They do not want to hear with their ears. They do not want to understand with their hearts. They do not want to turn to me. If they did turn, I would heal them. Notice the reasons given and note that but for these reasons, they could have seen, heard, and understood. They could have repented, and they could have been healed. So the reasons were that their hearts were dull or gross, fat, callous, and insensible. Their ears were hard of hearing. They were not willing to hear. They were not able to bear the, hearing the truth in a deeper sense. But they were not 
prepared to learn. Their eyes, they had closed. Now the crowds came out to hear Jesus, but more for entertainment than for any serious purpose. And Jesus did not commit himself to the crowds. That is, he did not instruct them in the deeper mysteries of the kingdom because they were not committed to him and he knew what was in their hearts. He knew that their hearts were not truly receptive to the message that he was teaching to his disciples. We read in John chapter 2, beginning with verse 23, John 2 and verse 23, while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people believed in him because they saw the miracles that he performed. Notice why they believed in him. It was because they saw him performing miracles. Things that would occur that had no uh, explanation beyond a higher power. People being healed instantaneously of blindness, of being lame, uh, of uh, being demon-possessed, or out of one's mind and various other miracles that Jesus performed. And this attracted uh, people's attention. And some of them believed in him because of these miracles. But it goes on to say in verse 24, Jesus, however, was wary of these believers. He understood people. This is from God's word to the nation translation. He was wary of those believers. He understood people. He understood their motives. He understood the shallowness of their belief. The word believed, where it says they believed in him, the word believed, pistuo, in verse 23, is in the arrowist tense, which is a, a Greek tense that has the aspect being undefined, but often implying action at a point in time. They believed in him at that particular moment, in other words, but for most of them, their belief, such as it was, was shallow and fleeting. It was not a real commit, uh, it was not a real commitment. It was a very shallow belief and a fleeting belief. And Jesus knew that the hearts of the people were not prepared to receive what he called the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven just yet. So his focus while preaching in general terms to the masses was to teach his close disciples spiritual truths that they could later pass on to others, including us. In due time, Jesus told his disciples, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. So he was teaching them these things so that they could in turn teach others. And actually they wrote them down because in the New Testament, we have not only the parables that Jesus spoke to the masses, we also have the explanations of those parables that he told, taught to his disciples. But the masses of people were attracted to Jesus primarily because of the miracles that he performed as reflected in John 2, verse 23 and elsewhere. And they were especially attracted by miracles when the miracles consisted of being fed. In John 6, we see how unprepared most of the people at that time were to become really faithful disciples of Jesus. We read in John 6, beginning with verse 1, John 6 and verse 1, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw that his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. Notice why they were following him. It was because of the miracles of healing that he performed publicly. 
Now this crowd that gathered around Jesus at this time on the edge of the Sea of Galilee numbered about 5,000 people. And Jesus decided to feed them miraculously with five barley loaves and two small fish, which he did. And when all had eaten their fill from these five barley loaves and two small fish feeding 5,000 people, Jesus said to his disciples in John 6, beginning with verse 12, John 6 and verse 12, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Subsequently, Jesus and his disciples crossed over the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum on the other side of the, of the it's actually a huge lake called the sea here, but it's a freshwater lake in Palestine. So they crossed over the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum, and the next day a big crowd showed up there following Jesus. And Jesus said to them, as we read in John 6, beginning with verse 26, John 6 and verse 26, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. So he was telling them, Well, here's where you start. You start out by believing in the one that God has sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign Will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Now, consider the situation here. Notice that they had already seen many miracles that Jesus had performed, miracles of healing. That's what attracted them, attracted the crowd in the first place. And then they had eaten the food that he had miraculously provided for the 5,000 from five loaves and two fish. And yet they said, what sign will you perform that we may see it and believe you? So the logical question is, what more proof do you need? What, what would it take to convince you? So Jesus began explaining to them that believing in him is the key to eternal life but they rejected his message. They were offended at his words. And we're told that from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. John 6 and verse 65, I believe it is. This uh, print, printing is, uh, has a... Uh, a flaw in it, so I'm not sure exactly what the verse is, but somewhere around 65 or 66. And uh, many of his disciples were not truly uh, committed, therefore. And so being offended, they abandoned the idea of following Jesus. In other words, they're, they were very shallow in their belief. They had no real staying power, no real commitment to Jesus. Anyone, however, anyone who is prepared to do what is necessary to be a disciple of Jesus Christ can become one or remain one once he is committed. But being a disciple of Jesus Christ in this age is not easy. Jesus attracted large crowds. 
but very few of those who heard him became committed disciples. When all was said and done in three and a half years of his public ministry after Jesus had been crucified and then resurrected and after 40 days ascended to heaven, there were about 120 disciples, according to Acts chapter 1 and verse 15. About 120 disciples. Now there are many in the world who claim to be disciples of Jesus, but there are relatively few who meet the Bible standards of what defines a true disciple of Jesus. Jesus said in John 8, verse 31, John 8, verse 31, he said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Notice the standard here is abiding or living according to the word of God. That's what makes you a disciple, a real disciple, a disciple indeed, as Jesus said. Now, how many of those who claim to be disciples of Jesus actually abide in his word? That is, live according to the scriptures. How many of them do that? The popular Christianity of this world is not the Christianity of the Bible. In many ways, it is far removed from biblical teachings. One obvious example, although it's not the only one, is the Sabbath. The Sabbath is sanctified as a day of rest and worship in Scripture. And it is specifically enumerated as the seventh day of the week. Yet few who identify themselves as Christians keep the Sabbath as God commands it to be kept. Popular Christianity is a blend with biblical themes and added to that are religious customs and teachings that are rooted in pagan idolatry. Idolatry and Sabbath breaking are leading reasons God rejected ancient Israel and sent them into captivity. These are not trivial matters as far as God is concerned. We read in Ezekiel 20, verse 18. Ezekiel 20 and verse 18. I said to the children, to their children, the children of Israel, in the wilderness, do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor observe their judgments, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes, keep my judgments, and do them. Hallow my Sabbaths, and they will be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Notwithstanding, the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes and were not careful to observe my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. But they profaned my Sabbaths. Then I said I would pour out my fury on them and fulfill my anger against them in the wilderness. Nevertheless, I withdrew my hand and acted for my name's sake that it should not be profaned in the sight of the Gentiles in whose sight I'd brought them out. Also, I raised my hand in an oath to those in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the Gentiles and disperse them throughout the countries because they had not executed my judgments but had despised my statutes, profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were fixed on their father's idols. Therefore, I gave them up to statutes that were not good and judgments by which they could not live. In other words, their own laws of their own devising or customs and modes of behavior that they borrowed from other peoples. And I pronounced them unclean because of their ritual gifts in that they caused all their firstborn to pass through the fire that I may, might make them desolate and they, they might know that I am the Lord. So Israel was sent into slavery, into captivity because of idolatry, because of Sabbath breaking and other sins. And when people break the Sabbath and worship idols, that inevitably leads to many other sins. We see the consequences of that in our nations today. 
this nation and other nations, so-called Christian nations. The word saint is a term referring to those who are holy or separate from the world in God's sight. And saints are defined in scripture in Revelation 14 verse 12. Saints are defined as those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Those who keep the commandments of God are saints. They're the holy ones of God, those sanctified by God as a part of the body of Christ, according to scripture. We also read in John 12, or Revelation 12, and verse 17, Revelation 12, verse 17, the dragon, who is Satan, was enraged with the woman, the woman being the true church of God, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. In other words, she, uh, he went to make war with the saints or converted Christians, the church. And notice what it says in describing these people, the true church of God, it is those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony or the word of Jesus Christ. So true disciples of Christ keep God's commandments as opposed to human devised traditions, which are often contrary to the commandments of God and the teachings of Jesus Christ. What that tells us is that being a disciple of Christ in today's world means following a path and a mode of behavior which is often in conflict with what is widely accepted and popular in the world. And so Jesus tells us in Matthew 7 and verse 13, Matthew 7 and verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few who find it. The easy way, the popular way, is a way that leads to destruction. The gate that is difficult and narrow that leads to life is one that few in this age will find, according to Jesus Christ. We read in Matthew, or excuse me, in uh, Luke uh, 14, Luke 14 and verse 25, beginning with verse 25, it says, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The word translated hate here in verse 26 in this context means to love less by comparison. In other words, you must prefer obedience to Christ above any other consideration. Even your closest family relations and even your own life and this is reflected in a similar statement in Matthew 10, where it says, Matthew 10, verse 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Yes, you're to love your father and mother, but you, you are to love Christ more if you want to be his disciple. He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. This idea of taking one's cross is being willing to bear persecution, to bear whatever trials and difficulties may be presented as a result of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. 
He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. So being a disciple of Jesus Christ implies that he comes first before any other consideration. Even our own comfort, our own preferences, our own desires, and our own family members, our own life. Being a disciple of Christ in this world often means rejection and suffering. In fact, it has typically meant that. Jesus said in Matthew 10 and verse 24, Matthew 10 and verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they had called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. And he was referring to the fact that, that they had accused him of being uh, Satan, in effect, or of the devil, which was what the Beelzebub implies. And if they uh, uh, hurled such invectives at him, then what are they going to call his disciples, is what he's saying. But he said, don't fear them. Don't be afraid of them because God knows what's going on. Over the centuries, the true disciples of Christ have often been persecuted, driven into wilderness areas, not infrequently murdered. Now, few of us in this era have suffered these things to a great extent. We've not had to endure such trials for the most part. The time will come once again before the end of this age when being a disciple of Christ will mean that one's life is in jeopardy. But God promises great rewards for those who are willing to pay the price and make the commitment necessary to become and remain a true disciple of Christ. Jesus said in John 6 and verse 40, John 6 and verse 40, this I say is my Father's pleasure that everyone who sees the Son and has faith in him may have eternal life, and I will take him up on the last day. Now notice what he said. He said, this is my Father's pleasure. This is his, as it says in the King James Version, this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and has faith in him may have eternal life. And I will take him up. In other words, I will resurrect him on the last day that is at the second coming of Christ. Adam Clark in his commentary comments on this verse as follows, quote, lest they should take a wrong meaning out of his words as, as many have done since, he tells them that far from any person being excluded from his mercy, it was the will of God that everyone who saw him might believe and be saved. The power without which they could not believe, he freely gave them. But the use of that power was their own. God gives the grace of repentance and faith to every man, but he neither repents nor believes for any man. Each man must repent for his own sins and believe in the Lord Jesus, though the grace, uh, through the grace given, or perish. So it's God's will that everyone see, understand Jesus Christ and what it means to be a disciple. To see the Son of Man, as it's translated, is not to see him in a corporal sense or to have speculative knowledge of him or historical belief in him. It is not to merely believe that he is the Messiah and Savior of the world. Now we must believe the record of the scriptures concerning Jesus Christ 
But beyond that, we must have a personal conviction that trusting in him and obeying him is the key to righteousness, happiness, and life itself. We must come to know him, to be committed to him and his commandments, to his teachings, to his way of life, come what may. The saints who are faithful in this age will not only be resurrected to eternal life at the second coming of Christ, they will be clothed, clothed with a glorious nude body in the likeness of Jesus Christ. As we read, as we read in Philippians 3, beginning with verse 20, Philippians 3 and verse 24, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So we will be clothed with, with a spiritual body a glorious body like that of the resurrected Christ because we will have become a part of the family of God sharing the nature of the creator, the eternal God. The resurrected saints will be given places of authority in God's government as Jesus Christ takes his place as King of Kings and Lord of Lords over the earth. And as we read in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 6, it says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, the fact that they will be priests implies that they will be teachers because that was the primary job of a priest. It is the primary job of a priest. And also it says they will reign with him. In other words, they will have authority. And as Christ said elsewhere, they will, the saints will sit on thrones and with him on his throne, so to speak. So there are great rewards for the effort one makes, for the commitment that one makes to being a disciple in this age. But we should want to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ not just because of future rewards, but because it's the right thing to do. Living according to God's word, according to his commandments, is how we were intended to live. And living that way is good for us, and it is good for everyone whose lives we affect, or whose life we affect. In Mark 8, Beginning with verse 34, Mark 8, verse 34, it says, When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Or whoever For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul or his own life? What will a man give in exchange for his soul or his life? Soul here just means his life. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now notice what Jesus said here. He said, whoever desires to come after me. Whoever desires. That doesn't leave anyone out. At least it doesn't leave anyone out who is desiring to come after him or follow him as long as that person is willing to do what Christ said here. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Christ. What that tells us is that everyone and anyone is invited to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Anyone who is willing, who is willing to meet God's requirements for being a disciple of Christ. 
We need to understand, though, that meeting the challenges of discipleship requires not only our willing effort and striving, but it can be accomplished only with God's help. It cannot be accomplished through human effort alone. We read in Luke 13, beginning with verse 22, Luke 13, verse 22, he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Will not be able. So notice that we must strive. In other words, put out extraordinary effort to enter through the narrow gate, which implies trials and difficulties. But even those who strive to do so will not necessarily, many of them will not be able. In fact, none of us is able of himself to enter in that way because we must also rely on God to give us the help that we need to succeed. We cannot do it on our own merits or our own capacities alone. In his sermon to the people in John chapter 6, Jesus said in verse 65, John 6 and verse 65, this is why I said to you, no man is able to come to me, that is, no one is able to follow Christ as a disciple. No one is able to come to me if he is not given the power to do so by the Father. No one can follow Christ if he is not given the power to do so by the Father, Jesus said. Now, many have misunderstood some of the verses in John 6. And this does not mean that one has no choice in the matter of being a disciple and remaining faithful. We are free moral agents. We all can choose. In fact, we're not only can choose, we'll be held accountable for what we choose. What Jesus said in John 6 or, or anywhere else in the, in the Bible does not mean that God j just picks out certain ones and excludes others arbitrarily. That is a false teaching. Now, there are times when God has chosen certain ones. He chose Israel to bless Israel because of Abraham's obedience. He didn't promise to bless other nations in that same way. But at the same time, he did testify to many nations through the prophets and Christ told his disciples to go to all the world, preach the gospel, and whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, he said. Whoever wills to be a disciple of Christ may become one. However, no one who wants to remain with Christ may rely on his own resources alone and be successful. To be a disciple of Christ it requires being willing to make that commitment, but to remain a disciple of Christ, one must seek God and be empowered by his spirit to do so. If one wills not to be a disciple of Christ, he cannot become one. But one can become a disciple of Christ if he wills to do so, and genuinely seeks power from on high to become and remain a faithful disciple. Now the Israelites, the physical nation of Israel, failed because they sought to establish their own righteousness rather than submitting to God's righteousness, as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. He said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may, may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. 
for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. In other words, they were doing it their way, relying on their own strength, their own, their own perception of what is righteous. They weren't relying on God. We have to rely on God. We have to have God's power working in us if we are to be successful as disciples of Christ. But God promises that power from on high if we diligently and persistently seek it from him. It is a promise of God that he will give us the power, the ability to succeed if we seek it from him. We read in Luke chapter 11, beginning with verse 5, Luke 11 and verse 5, he said to them, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, do not trouble me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give it to you. I say to you, though, he will not rise and give it to him because he is his friend. Yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. Because of persistence, persistent knocking, persistent asking. Finally, the person gets what he needs. So Jesus said, I say to you, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Notice what Jesus said. He said, if you ask, you will receive. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, it will be opened. But that doesn't mean it's going to happen immediately. It only will happen if you are persistent. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? But in asking, knocking, seeking, you've got to be persistent. That means we must ask God. We must seek God daily for the help that we need every day. We must be constant, persistent, and keep on seeking, asking, knocking daily, knowing that we need power from God if we are going to overcome because the struggle of a disciple to remain faithful is a lifelong struggle, and we need his help all the way through that struggle. So we have to keep on asking for it. We read in 2 Chronicles chapter 15, beginning verse 1, Now the Spirit of God came upon Azariah the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him... He will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will forsake you. So if we continue to seek God daily, we will find God. But if we turn around like some of the disciples did, many of the disciples did, and forsake Christ, he will forsake us. Jesus said, John chapter 5, verse 24, John 5, verse 24, this is from the Bible in basic English version. It says, Truly I say to you, the man whose ears are open to my word and who has faith in him who sent me has eternal life, and he will not be judged, 
or condemned as it is in the King James Version. He will not be condemned, but has come from death into life. The man whose ears are open to my word and who has faith in him who sent me has eternal life will not be condemned because he has passed from death into life. So think of yourself as a student of Jesus Christ, his disciple. Study the word of God. Seek God daily in prayer. Strive diligently to please Christ by obeying his word. Think about pleasing Christ. Make that your desire. Follow his example in faithfulness or his example of faithfulness in all that you do. Jesus is your teacher. He is your example. Follow his instructions. Seek to walk in his footsteps.